We're in Acts chapter 6 for this morning's message as we continue to work our way through the book of Acts. And I'll read for us verses 1 through 7 of Acts 6. This is God's word for us today. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole, congregation, the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray just briefly again. Oh, Father, you tell us in your word, this is the one to whom you will look, he who is humble and contrite and trembles at your word. Before us this morning is a passage that may not seem immediately relevant to many in this room, but we know, Lord, it is your word and it is relevant. Help us, Lord, to be humble, contrite, and to tremble before your word as we consider what you'd have us do, what you'd have us change, how you'd have us think, how you would have us live out our faith together as a church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You could be seated. Well, as I said, we've been studying the book of Acts together for much of this calendar year. And back in week one, I asked us to consider what we may not have in the Bible, what we would not know from the Bible without the book of Acts. That's a good question to ask of any book of the Bible, but especially important for the book of Acts because it's a transitional book. Uh, there's only one of its kind, unlike the, the letters or epistles, or unlike the four gospel accounts. At the end of Luke's gospel account, in Luke 24, Jesus gave a commission to the apostles. He said, it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things, Jesus told the apostles. This same commission is repeated in slightly different words at the beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. They are witnesses. They are witnesses who saw Jesus and him raised. And so they are witnesses who must say or speak that they saw. Now, without the book, without the rest of the book of Acts, we wouldn't know whether they spoke. They didn't speak very well at the end of the gospel accounts. They didn't represent Jesus very well the night of his cross. We might wonder whether these specific people, given this specific uh, commission really did anything at all. We would know, of course, that the gospel has gone out of Jerusalem and out of the Middle East and, and even to our land, and it continues to spread to this day, but we wouldn't know exactly how well it took off. We wouldn't see it take off with such explosive power as we can see in the book of Acts. Without the book of Acts, we wouldn't have this narrative of story after story showing us and proving to us the unstoppable nature of Christ's kingdom expanding in this world through the gospel preached. 
in between the stories in the book of Acts, there are these summary statements, even sometimes tallies with numbers attached to them. And they're set down for us by Luke, the author, like breadcrumbs along the way, showing us the main point of the book of Acts and, and showing us the progress of the gospel along the way. So back up with me, let's just review some of these summaries that we've seen so far. Like back in chapter 2, turn there, chapter 2, verse 41, those who received the word were added that day, about 3,000 souls. And then verse 47 of that same chapter, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You fast forward to chapter 4 and verse 4. Here's another, many who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000 at that point. And then chapter five, verse 14, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And then the last verse of the chapter we saw last week, chapter 5, verse 42, every day in the temple and from house to house, the apostles did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. In the very next verse, chapter 6, verse 1, in those days, the disciples were increasing in number. On the same theme, here our passage begins. And of course, here's how it also ends. Chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and even a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the drumbeat of Acts. There's gospel proclamation, and then there is gospel progress or spreading. And yet there's also another element that's important to see in between these summaries of growth. We not only see preaching taking place, but occasionally we'll also see a problem arise, a possible threat appear. The first problem in the book of Acts, the first threat was in chapter four. Persecution now is a reality. There's an arrest and a trial, there's censure, there's threat and warning. And we might wonder if we were in that moment, will this be it? Will they give up? Will they just go back home to Damascus? Well, they don't. They kept on proclaiming with Holy Spirit empowerment and the gospel kept spreading or progressing. The problem gave way to more proclamation and more progress. In Acts chapter five, there's another problem. This one emerges from within the church. Satan has filled the heart of Ananias and Sapphira, supposedly two believers, and he has led them to lie about how much they give or gave to the church. And you might wonder at this specific moment, Satan has now infiltrated the church and he has now swayed a couple to deceive apostles and the church. What will come of this? Well, it's no problem for the risen Lord Jesus who takes out Ananias and Sapphira in judgment and the reputation of the church at this point only increases. Some dared not join them, we're told, but held them in high esteem and many did join them and were added to the Lord that day. So there's this cycle going on in the book of Acts where there's proclamation and gospel progress or spreading in the world, but then there are these occasional problems or potential threats that arise, but, but no problem really, because it results in more proclamation and in greater progress. These are the acts of the risen Lord, we've been saying. Your Bible might have at the beginning the Acts of the Apostles. That's likely an addition added much later on before the, after, long after the writing of Luke. Maybe a better title is the Acts of the Risen Lord. It's the Lord that was adding to their number day by day. Lord in Acts often usually means the Lord Jesus, not just God generally. These are the acts of the risen Lord through the apostles preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit despite various threats and problems. 
Our passage for today in chapter 6 presents us with more of the same. Another cycle, more gospel progress, and then a, a new problem, but proclamation continues, and there's more gospel progress. Really, the problem and the solution of our passage center around serving widows and serving the word. That's our title. And first, we see a new problem. Verse 1, there's a new problem that arises out of the growing pains of the church. They were increasing in number, and then we find out certain widows are being neglected in the distribution of food. This is an issue of caring for the needy. In the past, the church has done amazingly well at caring for its own. It's been a vibrant part of the church as we saw in Acts chapter 2 and then again in Acts chapter 4, verse 34. There wasn't a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands. They, they brought the proceeds that were sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. The apostles were apparently first in charge of the distribution of goods among the church as needs arose. But with the massive, exponential growth of the church, sometimes by the thousands in a day, the 12 cannot handle what needs to be handled. That's a problem. It's a multifaceted problem. It's a practical problem because widows are needy, especially in this day. They were among the famously needy in the ancient Near East. This is a day when there weren't jobs available to women. There weren't life insurance policies. There was no government-provided welfare. So most handicapped and orphans and widows would have been completely dependent on others. And the church was to care for the needy in general, and the widows would have been a stellar example. They would have been exemplary of this group of needy people. Deuteronomy tells us that God provided for Israel so that they would provide for sojourners and fatherless and widows. So the problem of Acts 6 is not just a practical problem, it's a biblical problem. It's also a social problem, at least potentially. Verse 1 tells us that a complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because the Hellenist widows were being neglected. Now most of us don't know or don't remember what Hellenists and Hebrews are. And so let me explain, let me give you some background. Hellenists were Jews, but they were Greek-speaking Jews and Greek-enculturated Jews. They were from the offspring of those Jews who, after the Babylonian captivity, didn't go back home to Jerusalem or to Israel's territory, but remained in the outskirts, in Gentile lands. And so they had kept their Jewish faith, at least in this context, for the most part. But they spoke Greek, and they adopted Greek culture and, and Greek ways of thinking. They used a Greek Bible. The Hebrews, on the other hand, were, in a sense, the more Jewish Jews. They were the ones who spoke Aramaic and had Bibles in Hebrew. You can imagine how each of these different groups would sort of view the other. The Hellenists would likely see the Hebrews as old fuddy-duddies who don't get out much. And the Hebrews would look at the Hellenists, no doubt, and see them as worldly compromisers. But now, with the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, Gentile, or sorry, Greek Jews and Jewish Jews are embracing him. And rightly so, they are being added to the same church. In years past, they had separate synagogues, one in Greek, another one in Aramaic and Hebrew. They, they basically kept to their own as different kinds of Jews. But now in Jesus, they're in the same church because Jesus came to unite his people, to unite all things. They couldn't stay separate. 
And yet, those old stereotypes and suspicions would die hard. And so that is surely in the background when one group's widows were neglected and the others weren't. I don't think it was malicious, like a a planned neglect of certain widows along social lines. I, I think it was accidental. I think it was a size problem. I think it was unintentional and unfortunately it fell along social and cultural lines. But a big problem for division remains, doesn't it? You can imagine how this could go south quickly. This snowball could could get real big and gain speed getting down the hill. Isn't this how many fights and divisions happen in the church even today? Maybe there's a genuine concern. Maybe that genuine concern is rightly addressed. But then motives are assumed. Various assumptions are made. Parties, camps, formed lines are drawn. Teams are drawn up. And each side has nothing but accusation for the other and then they divide, they split, they part ways. And that could have happened here in Acts 6. Luke doesn't imply that it got that nasty, but it could have. But there's still another potential problem, one that is of greater concern than the needs of the widows or social tensions in the church. It has to do with the potential distraction of the apostles from the ministry of the word. What will they do to solve this problem? Will they give all their attention to the needs of the needy and thereby neglect what they have as a primary calling? And so verse two, they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That is not the solution. What then is the solution? Well, secondly, a wise solution. Verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, the apostles weren't above caring for physical needs or feeding the poor. In fact, they had led the distribution of funds to the needy up until this point. But that wasn't their primary calling. It wasn't what Jesus commissioned them to do. And if something has to give, preaching can't give. And yet, neither is care for the poor optional. And so they come up with a wise plan that accomplishes both. And like the problem was multi-layered, so the wisdom of the solution is wise on multiple levels. It's a humble solution. Notice that they acknowledge this as a problem. They receive it. They could have dismissed it. They could have downplayed it. They could have delayed dealing with it. All kinds of leaders and pastors deal with complaints or concerns in the church along similar lines. The apostles here could have assumed that this is just an immature squabble like two kids debating who got more chocolate milk in the cup than than the other. The apostles could have responded here with a sermon series in Exodus 16 about grumbling and murmuring and how much God hates it. But they don't do any of that. They receive this. They address it. It is a, a humble solution. It's a creative solution. There's a new problem. And so it required a new scheme, a new plan, even a new structure. They utilized that famously useful leadership move Delegation, which we all know is needed, especially in large institutions, but we also know it's not easy for those who are natural-born leaders to give up, to delegate, to hand off or hand over. It was a broadly involved and well-communicated solution. They summoned the whole church, thousands of people, in order to address it. It had congregational involvement, Pick out from among yourselves seven men, and then we'll appoint them. 
It was a practical solution. They suggested picking out guys who are full of wisdom, verse 3. Full of wisdom with administration skills, with leadership skills. Imagine this task. Yes, seven men. That's a good group of men. But this is for the needs of a church. How, How big is it now? 5,000 was the last number we heard, and then we heard multiply greatly and more than ever. Is it 10,000 now? Is it possibly 20,000 with women and children? Perhaps. These are skilled men, good leaders, but they're also spiritual men. They were not just to be wise guys who can get it done no matter what it takes. Even before they're considered to be wise, They must first be considered men of good repute, full of the spirit, and also full of wisdom. It was a unifying solution. This can be seen in the specific men that the congregation selects. Their names are given to us in verse 5, and they're all Greek names. These are Greekish Jews, the Greek kind of Jews. The Greeky Jews, you could say. That was a sensitive and strategic move for the church to select Greekish Jews and for the apostles to accept and acknowledge and appoint them. Two of the seven stand out for another reason. The first two, Stephen and Philip, they will play a major role in the next few chapters. We'll find out that they're not just great servant administrators, but they are also wonderful preachers and evangelists. And another name stands out for another reason still. The last name, Nicholas, we're told is a proselyte from Antioch. A proselyte means he wasn't born Jewish. He converted to Judaism and then converted to Christianity. He's a Gentile. Here's a Gentile not only in the church, but one of the first leaders other than the apostles in the church. Of course, Jesus told his disciples that if he be lifted up on the cross, he will draw all men, all kinds of men to himself. He had other sheep that were not of that fold, the Jewish fold, and he will bring them in and they will be one. We're seeing the first fruits or hints of that here with Nicholas. It's a wise solution. These are the magnificent seven, we might say. Now, you might wonder if they are deacons. This passage is often thought of as uh, the deacon passage. You might have noticed I didn't call them deacons yet. That's because we don't have that word as a, a title anyway or as a noun in this passage. And later on in the book of Acts, when the seven are referred to, they're actually just called the seven. Now, the verb to serve, which is where we get that noun entitled deacon. Here it says, yes, serve. They're, they're to serve. But, but, but that same word is actually used of the apostles. They're going to serve the word, minister the word. Now, it's possible that the seven and their administrative, practical needs kind of ministry later grew into what we know of as an office in the church called deacon. Philippians 1.1 talks about elders and deacons. 1 Timothy 3 gives qualifications for elders and deacons. We know from those passages that there are two offices in the church, elder and deacon. And so though... Acts 6 may not be showing us the very first deacons per se. I would suggest it's not inappropriate for deacons today or since Acts 6 to look back to Acts 6 for inspiration and encouragement. I know our deacons have the smell of the magnificent seven about them. Skilled, sacrificial, willing godly, wise. I'm so thankful for our current deacons and what they do. I'm so thankful for maybe dozens others in our church who at one time have served as deacons in various capacities. I'm so thankful 
for deacons and for others in the church who serve in so many various ways. Hundreds of people in this church do things that I could never do, would never do, and am not good at. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to check in kids for the nursery or for children's. I've never even checked in one of my own kids. How's that? After almost 14 years, I've never checked in one of my kids or checked out one of my kids. Sometimes one of you will bring them to me. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I love the service, the care, the sacrifice, the leadership, the thoughtfulness, the wisdom and skill that is represented in so many areas of our church. I think of that metaphor of local church ministry, the trellis in the vine. Have you heard of that before? There's a book by that name, The Trellis and the Vine. The idea is that the vine is life, and the vine is supposed to grow and flourish. But trellis is there for structure and to help the vine grow as it's supposed to go and for it to grow best. Some churches have a vine but no trellis. So there's some life, it looks lively, but it's also rather chaotic. The vine is unruly and it's ultimately not going to be healthy. There's some other churches that have very tidy trellises, very clean, empty trellises. That's the case in my backyard right now. When we first moved in in our giant black block wall, I put up wood trellises and then vines grew through them. And then vines overtook them and crushed them and disintegrated them. And so I took everything down. And then just this year, I put up very nice trellises. Nothing's on them yet. And so the ideal is trellis and vine working together for health. And we need godly visionaries and schedulers and planners and people who do pie charts and all that. But we also need life. We have to think of people. And not everyone's supposed to do the same thing. The seven are not apostles. The apostles are not the seven. So thirdly, we see a renewed commitment. Right there in the middle of all that's happening there with that wise decision, wise planning, there's a renewed commitment that takes place. And really, this is the primary point of our passage. I've purposely left it somewhat aside until now so we can focus on it. It's found in verse 2 in verse 4. In verse 2, they say it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In verse 4, they say we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The wise plan was wise in large part because it kept the apostles from neglecting their primary Christ-given assignment. That primary assignment was worded so well at the end of the last chapter, every day in the temple and house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It's not that serving widows is second rate. It's not that the apostles are above such menial work. No. But serving the food to the widows is not something that everyone is called to do. We think of that imagery that Paul uses of the church as a body. Different parts doing different things. All for the whole. But the question is not whether Christians will serve. The question is not even whether the apostles are going to serve. The question is what they serve, how they serve, and where they serve. The seven are going to serve with food to the needy, and, and the twelve are going to serve with spiritual food from God's word. Same Greek word. Verse 2, we shouldn't serve tables. Verse 4, instead we should serve the word. They're serving up the word. Again, they say, it's not right that we give up the preaching of the word. And we will devote ourselves to two things, prayer and ministry of the word. These are essential for the life of the church and the endurance of the church and the progress of the church. 
Remember that the problem presented to us at the beginning of Acts 6 was a real problem, a multi-layered one. Yes, it meant neglecting the needy, that's bad. Potential division in the church, that's even worse. But the greatest threat of them all was that the apostles might abandon their primary calling of word in prayer in order to meet a genuine need. But nothing, no problem, no hole, no gap, no need is so important that the word in prayer can be neglected. This was a fork in the road for the church. Will physical care for the needy eclipse the ministry of the word? Or will the word and prayer remain robustly at the center of the church in its ministry? Again, it's not that word and prayer is the only important thing, or even that it is number one, and then let's number them down from there. No, no, no. Think of it more as like being at the center of serving all other ministries. Ephesians 4 talks about pastors and teachers equipping the whole church for the work of ministry. It's like a sun with many rays. And so the preaching of God's word and the prayer and the preparation of preaching God's word must be at the center of all other ministry and feeding those. And if it's not, well, the gospel is lost. The gospel is lost. That's what's at stake. Will we lose our message? Will we have anything to offer the world besides handouts? We have the word. This is the primary point of our passage. It's not primarily a passage about how to administrate or, or even how to take care of widows per se. It's not a, a passage introducing us to the first deacons. It's not primarily showing us how to select leaders or even how to lead a, an effective members meeting or something like that. The primary point of the passage is that prayer and ministry of the word is absolutely essential to the life and endurance of the church. There is always a temptation for real needs and good things to distract from this. There is a constant need in every good church for some to be willing to say no to real needs and good deeds in order to devote themselves to the prayerful ministry of the word. This is a principle as true today as ever, even though we don't have apostles alive today. In the book of Acts, we have apostles, and they're doing unique things. At times, it's really important to emphasize what's unique about what they're doing. They have unique authority. They are accomplishing unique and amazing things. And the apostleship died out with that first century. It does not continue. They were unique. And here, the apostles are the ones who say in verse 4 that they'll devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. But... If we look on in the New Testament, we will find a very similar job description for pastors or elders. Pastors, elders, overseers, those are three interchangeable terms for one office, one kind of ministry in the church. They're also known as shepherds. That's what the word pastor means, to, to shepherd. And they shepherd with the word. They preach the word in season and out of season. As 1 Timothy 4 says, they are to command and teach the church. They are to devote themselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. They are to immerse themselves in these things. They are to, uh, to keep a close watch on themselves and their teaching that they and their people might be saved. 2 Timothy 2 tells us that they are to present themselves to God unashamed as workers who rightly handle the word. Now, teaching isn't all that elder pastors do. They are to lead, they are to organize, they are in some ways to oversee. 
We should also note that not all elders will have the same form of word ministry. Mine is unique in this church in that it's the most visible, uh, but other word ministry happens among others in various ways. And we should say also it's not just the elders who do teaching in a church. There are other ways in which Christians teach and do the one another's we sometimes say, like exhort one another, teach one another, encourage one another, admonish one another even. We should note that not all elders will be able to give the same amount of time to their work. Some, if possible, should be freed up by a church to devote themselves vocationally to the work of the word. We get this from 1 Timothy 5. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, a word for financial remuneration. It says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I thank God that this church believes in that and does this, not just for me, but several men and several assistants under them are freed up from outside work in order to devote ourselves to various forms of word ministry. I am privileged to be a recipient of your generosity, not just your generous compensation, but your care for space and time and support and prayer. Just speaking personally, I want you to know as your preaching pastor that it isn't always easy to say no to some other good and drawing kind of things. I would like to make more hospital visits than I do. I would like to write more handwritten notes of just general encouragement than I do. I would love to kiss more babies in this church than I do. I would love to mow the grass with Ian Bird every Thursday here at the church, but my outline is due at noon on Thursday. And I do one thing Thursday morning and nothing else. John MacArthur was once asked what he thought the secret to a successful ministry is. And he said, I don't know what the one single secret is, but one thing I've learned is that I just have to keep my butt in the seat. I can relate. It isn't always easy come Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning to keep my butt in the seat or to be on my knees or to be in the books or to have the Bible open and work in it. I thank you not just for the freedom to do that, but the charge to do that. I wouldn't get away with not doing it. I don't do it perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, but I do know that this is a church where if I started getting up on a Sunday morning and standing before you with just jokes or stories or holding a puppy or more props or pyrotechnics or you wouldn't keep me around and rightly so. Some years ago, some anonymous layman penned this on how to make a pastor a man of God. There's some hyperbole in it. Just remember that hyperbole is exaggeration to make a point. So he's making a point. Notice the point in his hyperbole. He says, fling him into his office tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign, study. Lock him up with his books and his Bible on his knees before texts and broken hearts and a holy God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all the night through and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth for spouting remarks over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God. Make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Give him a Bible and tie him to the pulpit. 
and make him preach the word of the living God. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances and batting averages and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Form a choir and raise a chant. Haunt him with it night and day. Sir, we would see Jesus. When at long last he dares assay the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, then dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper and digest the television commentary and think through the day's superficial problems and bless the baked beans better than he can. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up, worn and forlorn, and say, Thus saith the Lord. Corner him with questions about God. Give him no escape until his back is against the wall of the word and then sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left God's word let him be ignorant of the street gossip but give him a chapter and order him to walk through it and camp on it sup with it and come at last to speak it backward and forward and when he's burned out by the flaming word when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him and finally transferred from earth to heaven, bear him away gently and blow a muted trumpet, place a two-edged sword in his coffin and raise the tomb triumphant. For he was a brave soldier of the word and ere he died and had become a man of God. Acts 6 calls on pastors by extension to devote themselves to the ministry and prayer of the word, preparation, prayer, proclamation. By implication, Acts 6 is calling on the whole church to support pastoral prayer and, and preparation and preaching to prioritize it in the life of the body. By extension, Exodus is calling on you, church, to avail yourself to what is central in the ministry of the church, the preaching of the word. Acts 6 calls you to serve in the church wherever you can, where you see need, however you can be best used so that needs are met and so that holes are filled and pastors aren't distracted with filling those holes. There are certain things which cannot be neglected. Word and prayer. These cannot be neglected even when other things, good things, are neglected. Fourth, there is a supernatural result at the end of all this in verse 7. A supernatural result. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word, the word, the word. It's Luke's drumbeat. You see how once again in this passage, he's laid down breadcrumbs for us to see his primary point. In verse 2, the apostles said, we can't give up preaching the word. In verse 4, they said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And then verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. What a peculiar phrase, isn't it? The word increased? What do you add water to it and it grows? What? No, it spread. Its influence spread. It increasingly had sway in the church and out of the church. In the temple, publicly, and house to house. They didn't cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. We were told at the beginning of this passage that there's continued growth in the church. We've been seeing it's because God is blessing the preaching of his word. And we wondered whether this new problem or threat would divert the church and its preachers from what is central. But with resolve and good leadership and administrative creativity, the needy were fed Unity was repaired, and the word 
remained robustly at the center. In fact, it continued to reach out into the world. They taught believers, they preached to unbelievers, and the word continued to progress. Even priests now are coming to faith. That's amazing in light of last week, chapter 5. Remember, the high priest and, and 70 other priests are totally against this thing, but some under them, many under them, are, are coming to Jesus and seeing he's the Christ and the Messiah. Uh, people who you think never would come to believe and never get on board with this. People, as I said last week, who have so much to lose to embrace Jesus. It's so hard to come to him from one angle. But priests are coming because it's so easy to come to him. You just embrace it. He says, come, get him, believe in him, trust in him, put all your eggs in this basket that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, was raised in the third day, and now lives forevermore as the king of all of creation. That's the gospel. That's good news. Believe it today. We wish you would. We wish more and more would. I think we all would like to see more and more people become Christians through the witness and influence of Desert Springs Church. I know I come to a passage like this, and I can't help but wonder why we don't see increase, multiplication, conversions like we would like to, just simply more than we do. This is difficult. On the one hand, we need to ask ourselves hard questions. I know I need to pray for the lost more than I do, be more bold in my private witness than I am, and be better at preaching the gospel to unbelievers here even in this room. There's mystery here. There's human responsibility as a factor. And yet, God is sovereign, and we're not just claiming that so we can get ourselves off the hook. Ultimately, Jesus does this. He's the one adding to his church. It's not just word at the center, but it's a supernatural blessing of the word at the center. But I do know this, that the word will not be held if the word isn't held. The word will not spread if the word isn't at the center. So stick with the word. Stick with this priority. Stick with word and prayer as the absolute essential. Every week, every month, basically every decision we make as a church, there's a fork in the road. Will we get distracted? Will we look for something else? Will we be tempted to look down the street at another church and say, they're growing like in the book of Acts. How come we're not? What are they doing? We might be tempted at times to get more slick, more dramatic, more entertaining, more technological, on and on the list goes. But we can't let those things eclipse the word. We can't even let good things eclipse the word. If I can put it this way, not even sweet little old hungry widows can eclipse the prayer and preaching of the word. And I love sweet little old widows, and I want to make sure they're all fed. I know this from the book of Acts, that problems will continue to arise for this church and every church. It's part of God's plan in this fallen world before the new heaven and new earth. But I know if, if we continue to proclaim, there will be progress at whatever pace that is. Sometimes it will, it will be quick. Sometimes God will microwave the building of his church and we will get down the road really fast. And sometimes we will wait 
And we will wait patiently and prayerfully and persistently with the word at the center. Let me close by reading from Mark 4 where Jesus tells us what the kingdom of God is like. He says the kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed on the ground. He just throws it. It's seed. He just throws it. And he sleeps and night and day the seed sprouts and grows eventually. And he knows not how. He's just a seeder. Jesus said the earth produces it all by itself. First it's the blade, just a little bit, then, then the ear, and then full grain. And then when the grain is ripe and the harvester shows up and the harvest has come. He goes on to ask, what should we compare the kingdom of God to? What parable should we use for the kingdom of God? He says it's like a grain of mustard seed, which When sown on the ground, it's the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. And yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts its branches out so that the birds of the air from far away can come and make its nest. This is the kingdom of God. Let us pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done more and more on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, Father, we thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for our king. We thank you for his sacrifice for our sin. We thank you for his reign in this world. We thank you for his promises to build his church. We thank you for this word picture Jesus gives us that our work is like farming and seeding and sleeping and waiting. And then we know not how, eventually, harvest. And we're in this room today as proof that you are producing. You are growing. You are bearing fruit in this world. We pray for more of it. We pray for more of it sooner. Yet we trust you. We thank you for this church, for sacrifices that are made that are made in servants that are born and how you use us as a body. We're far from perfect, Lord, but whatever good is there, it is your doing. It is a gift from you, and we are blessed by it and thank you for it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.